All right. Go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 4. Thank you so much for all sitting on this side. My neck is not going to have to move at all. This is great. I can just look at you guys. John chapter 4. That's after John chapter 3. It's on uh, page 1,237 in my Bible. That's not going to help you, but just so you know. And that's the lame pastor joke for the day. All right. So we are taking this semester to look at the person of Jesus, right? So we've been talking a ton about who Jesus is. We've been attempting to understand his character, attempting to understand why does he think the way that he thinks. Um, We're looking at knowing the person of Jesus. We kind of said the reason for that was when we thought about Jesus, we immediately think about Christmas, birth, and we think about him. He did something with his disciples, healed a bunch of people, and then there's the death and resurrection. But there's actually like a person of Jesus and a personality and characteristics of it. And the more that we spend time in the Gospels, we actually understand that personality of Jesus. I think I share this with you guys, but for one of my classes, I had to read a Gospel a week uh, for one of my classes. And I found out which one's the shortest one and which one takes a lot longer to read. And what I did for four weeks just reading those Gospels is that you came essentially infatuated with the person of Jesus. And at the end, when, we, when I'd come to church and when I would uh, sing worship songs, it was a different experience because I had kn- I'd known who the person of Jesus was. And so when I sang, uh, like we were singing Living Hope, Christ being our living hope, right? Y'all know, y'all know that song? Well, all of a sudden, I'm remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm remembering the person of Jesus as like a real memory, not as this far-off idea. Uh, and so it became personable to me because I had kind of taken myself and immersed myself in that story. And so the truths about who Jesus were actually became real to me. So that's kind of what I'm wanting us to do this semester. We've been doing that for a couple weeks. Last week, Melina talked about Jesus calling the disciples and how it was actually quite the honor for someone to be called to be Jesus' disciples because that they had, what that meant was that they had already dropped out of their school, essentially, their college dropouts. So Jesus calls a bunch of college dropouts to come join him. Uh, That doesn't mean you should drop out of college. But so, and as a result, Jesus uses college dropouts to start the first church, which I think is pretty cool. So, but let's go back to John 4. John 3 is what we looked at the week before that, and that's when Jesus had a conversation with a dude named, anyone remember? Nicodemus, extra point, Carly. All right, you are now tied with Austin for points. Okay. (laughs) What if I did that? Just gave an updated point tally throughout the week. (laughs) Have like a leaderboard in the back. Um, Okay, so... Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus where he actually explains eternal life. And there's that really famous verse, John 3.16, that we read. Y'all remember that? Okay, so we're going to reference that in a little bit. Well, the first thing that I want us to do, and this isn't something we normally do in church, so you're going to have to, like, get comfortable, is I want us to read the whole story of John 4, okay? John 4 is about Jesus' interaction with a woman at a well in Samaria. And we're going to go back through after we read it and really get the understanding. Uh, But we're going to take a second and read 42 verses, okay? And we're going to read the story. And what we're looking for in the story is, who is Jesus? What kind of man is Jesus? 
All right? So immerse yourself in this story, and then we're going to go from that. Is that cool? Cool? Somebody say cool. cool. All right, thanks. I love my three days in the front. Y'all got my back today. All right. John 4. David, I noticed you didn't say always like the other two, but that's okay. All right. <laughs> All right. John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, who left, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, you know, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do a will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you that we can read large portions of Scripture and really understand the story. God, there's many themes in this text, many applications for us today. God, help us to kind of see ourselves in this story, um, to see where this story intersects with some of our current ways of thinking, um, of our current understandings. God, may we see your pursuit of us. And um, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks for letting me read a large passage of Scripture like that. The reason I wanted to do that is because that's a, a full story that can't be captured in just a verse or two. Did y'all, did y'all catch that? So there's a ton of themes today, a ton of themes. Um, we're going to hit on four major themes. And I think my challenge for you isn't to just try to remember all four. My challenge for you is to take one of those four and really digest it, really think about it, really meditate on it. We're going to talk about Jesus being intentional. Uh, we're actually going to talk about worship today. We're going to talk a little bit about evangelism and how to use your story. And we're going to talk about the idea of satisfaction and fulfillment. Those are all present in this one text. So why not break it up and talk about them four different weeks? Because Jesus did a lot of cool things, and we've got to keep going. But you see all four of those present in that text. Let's go back to the beginning of John 4. John 4. He says that he has to go to Samaria, right? Now, when we hear Samaria, we, all, we think about the Good Samaritan. Do you all remember the Good Samaritan? All right. Or we think about nothing because I've never been to Samaria, right? Those are our two options. So let's assume that you remember the Good Samaritan. What you remember that, about that story is that Jesus was calling out a bunch of Pharisees for not helping their neighbor, but there was a Good Samaritan who came and helped the guy on the side of the road, right? And so everyone says, hey, go be a Good Samaritan. What we don't catch, because culturally we don't understand it, is that the Samaritans actually have a really bad taste in people's mouths when you think about, oh, you're from Samaria. Uh, it's like, oh, you live in Lufkin. Like, the same, same idea. So... When you say, like, oh, you're from Samaria, it's this direct connotation that we don't like you, okay? So Jews and Samaritans, they don't get along at all, all right? Now, more than that, the Jews actually view Samaritans as half-breeds. They say that. They say they're half this, they're half that, half marginalized people group that no one wants to have anything to deal with. So it was a really big deal in the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus says, hey, a Samaritan's actually more righteous than you, right? The, that makes sense why the Pharisees like, wanted to kill him afterwards. So the Samaritans, we want to have no interactions. The Samaritans actually believe in the first five books of the Bible, but for the rest of the Bible, so the five, first five books are called the Torah, right? Jewish Torah. You got Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Numbers. Not in that order. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the first five books, you have the Torah. And the, the Samaritans believed that. But the rest of the Bible, they just kind of literally pick and chose what they believe. Okay? So here's what I want you to imagine. 
I want you to imagine a person that society calls a half-breed, that's incredibly marginalized, that people don't like already, and someone who kind of picks and chooses what they believe. Now, if I were to ask, hey, does anyone know anyone like that? We would say yes. They're not from Samaria, right? Um, But we know people like this. Yet, look at verse 4. Jesus is walking, and he says, and he had to pass through Samaria. What we don't understand is that, so he's in, uh, what he's, he's in? He's in Judea, and he's heading for Galilee, right? So Galilee's over here, and Judea's over here. Okay, y'all, y'all catch, kind of catching this map? Well, Samaria's right here in the middle, okay? So Judea, Galilee, Samaria. What Jews would do is they would walk around to Galilee. They hated Samaria so much, they wouldn't even walk through it. So they would actually spend more time on their feet, another day or two's journey, to get there. Yet Jesus shows up and he says, I have to go through Samaria. Why does he have to do that? Well, a couple reasons. One, Jesus doesn't really follow the social norms that tell us who needs to be loved and who needs to not be loved, right? Um, when, we, when you really study the person of Jesus, you're going to find that his love and his compassion for humanity is through the roof. It's just, it's incredible. All of those social norms that we have in our head, and don't, let's, let's be real, we have them. Like, he completely annihilates all of them and just loves the people. Second reason is he had an appointment. He had an appointment with a woman at a well. Now, we don't really think about this. We just think, okay, there was this woman at a well. She was getting water. And I guess Jesus just stumbled upon her, right? Well, it says that he met her there about the sixth hour. That's about noon. So it's a high, high noon, high day. And Jesus has been walking all day. And it says that Jesus is tired. So he's worn out, been walking in the sun all day. Imagine if you like woke up at eight and just walked till noon. Would you be tired? Yes, you'd be exhausted, right? Especially if you didn't have like New Balance, but you had like Jesus sandals. Like, so there you are walking in jandals and you are just exhausted. You get to a place where there's water. You sit down and there's a lady and she probably was by herself because it's noon, which means that the other women in the town who had come out to get water, they had, they had come that morning when it was still cool and had gone back before it was hot. Does that make sense? So here it is, middle of the day, it's hot. It's like mowing your grass at 2, 2 p.m. Like everyone mows it in the morning, you understand what I'm saying? So, um, so they come out, middle of the day, and she's getting water. Why is she getting water? Well, what do we find out about her? She kind of had a reputation, okay? She's currently living a guy, with a guy that's not her husband and has had four husbands before that. Um, and so... Imagine Samaria. Let's just imagine it in small town Knack. Even if word's not trying to get around, if you have four marriages and then that doesn't work and there's another marriage, word kind of gets around when you walk in. They're like, oh, that's, that's her. Like, y'all know who she is. Like, word kind of gets around. So as a result, why was she there at noon instead of at the morning? Because she was ostracized from her original people group. She was an outcast from her original people group because... She was, the, she was that lady who would come and steal your man, okay? Let's just, let's, put it, let's just put it real frank here. 
She was the lady that you were kind of nervous about. You were cautious about because she just, she just made you a little nervous. So all the ladies came early, and she began to feel that it was, it was awkward. And so she came later because she didn't want to have anything to do with them. So she's ostracized by her own people, and she's Samaritan. What is that? What is that a recipe for? It's a recipe for incredible isolation. It's a recipe for someone who's an unlikely candidate to receive God's grace. Is this making sense? So there we are. We have an outcast of the outcasts. And Jesus shows up. And he asks for a drink of water. I love it. And it says, and his disciples went away to buy food. They just left the guy? Like, hey, you stay here. We're going to go buy food. You're going... I try to read comedy whenever I can into scripture. And this passage is full of it for me because the disciples have literally no idea what's going on. Um, and I love the part where they're like, who, did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. Did you bring him food? And he's like, where'd you get food from? <laughs> oh, he must have brought him food. He didn't bring him food. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So disciples just left Jesus there. And, and he starts asking for a drink. And this, this lady... So I was kind of reading some commentaries, and she says, like, hey, why are you asking me a drink uh, for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. This doesn't work. And what they actually were saying is that she has a little bit of sass. Like, her response is sassy. Like, don't be asking me for water. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, how would y'all respond to that? Like, you're tired. You've been walking all day. You see a lady. Hey, can I have some water? Don't be asking me. Oh, okay. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd back off. And he says, but here's the thing. He wanted to be so intentional in this moment. I talk about intentionality every week. But he wanted to be intentional in this moment. And he says, hey, if you knew the water that I could give you, you would actually ask me for water. And it would be living water. And, and then now here's the thing. This lady also thinks very literal. She says, look, where are you getting this water from? This is the only well in town. <laughs> uh, you, ain't, you ain't got no water bucket. Like... <laughs> How's this going? Where are you getting water from? And, uh, and Jesus, so this is a side note, but it's a reality. Twice or two or three times in this passage, Jesus says something, and his people have a very literal interpretation. But he was trying to give them spiritual truth. Now, I'm a very literal guy, Okay. And, and I began to think, man, I wonder how many times that I've received information literally that I needed to actually process it as spiritual truth. Um, so that is a side note. That's not one of the four major points. But just, let's just process that. And the woman kind of says, you have nothing to draw water with. Where'd you get it? And, and he says, are you, are you greater than Jacob, the guy who made this well? Uh, where are you getting this water? Verse 13, Jesus says, but here's the thing. Everybody who drinks out of this water gets thirsty again, right? Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm batting a thousand. Every day you come back for water. And he says, but whoever drinks the water that I'm going to give him will, be thir- will never be thirsty again. And matter of fact, it's going to become a spring of water welling up into their life, into eternal life. He says, I have water that will make you never thirsty. I have water that is going to spring up within you, overflow, Right? And it's going to lead to life. Never thirst, abundance, and leads to life. And what does she do? She says, uh, give me some of this water. I don't want to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She's thinking literally. Okay, okay, so you're telling me there's a water out there that will 
completely satisfy my desire, my thirst. And Jesus jumps here. So he, he says, look, there is a living water that will lead to eternal life and it will come in abundance. Now, we can understand this spiritually, but she was not thinking spiritually at the moment. She was thinking literally. Flip over to John 7. John 7, verse 37. This is the only time that Jesus uses this idea of living water. In John 7, verse 37, it says, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait. All right, John 7, 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says that living water is salvation, and that whole spring of living water, that abundance, is the promise of the Holy Spirit within us. He explains this analogy two chapters later. I love it when he explains it. I want you all to flip to Jeremiah chapter 2. That's to your left. If you flip to Jeremiah chapter 2, you see him talk again about water. In Jeremiah 2, what is that reference? Verses 12 and 13. Uh, here, God's kind of calling out some people for forsaking the living water. Okay? In Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and a few are cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He, so here, God rebukes his people for, for forsaking God, who is this fountain of living water, who is the source of life. Okay? Water brings life. Go back to John 4. Water brings life. Living water, eternal life. This is found in the person of Jesus. Y'all kind of beginning to grasp what I'm trying to say here. And so there's this idea of water and life and satisfaction. What is water? He says, if you're never going to thirst again, does that mean, it means you have eternal fulfillment, right? There's no desire to thirst again. You have eternal fulfillment. And Jesus flips it. He says, go call your husband and come here. This is after she asked for it. And the woman's like, I don't have a husband. And she just says, hey, you said, right, you've had four husbands and the person you're living with now isn't currently your husband. Why does Jesus say that? Isn't that such like a, a turn? Why does he say that? Well, eternal living water is all about satisfaction and fulfillment. What do we know about this lady? This lady had sought satisfaction and fulfillment in relationships her entire life. She had tried it over and over and over again and came up empty every time, every marriage, every marriage. She'd, she'd came up empty so much. So what Jesus does is he kind of, he points to the, the thing in her life where she had sought for satisfaction and was like, there's real satisfaction out there. There's real satisfaction out there. We're going to get to this in a little bit. 
But when we're dealing and talking with people and, and sharing the gospel with them, we, we want to hedge sometimes about like not calling people out on their sin. And I understand exactly why. And some of that's very wise. But sometimes it's really smart to kind of put your thumb on like, hey, you've been searching for satisfaction in this. And where are you at? Yet there's a man who offers living water. There's a man who offers eternal satisfaction in the Lord. And it's right here available to you. So Jesus kind of calls her out. And uh, verse 19 is funny. It says, the woman said, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Um, And then she kind of does this little uh, smooth maneuver to have him quit talking about her, her, her life and says, let's talk about worship. Uh, you're a prophet. Here's the two things I know about Jesus and prophets. Uh, people used to worship here, but now they worship there. And some guy named the Christ is going to come and he's going to tell us all these things. So what this is, is a conversation where Jesus is saying, hey, there's fulfillment and You've been lurking, looking for it in this way, but it's actually found over here in eternal life and with living water. And she goes, ah, and kind of tries to sidestep, try to get out of it, and says, oh, uh, uh, prophets, uh, worship. Hey, let's talk about that. And so tries to, like, maneuver her way out of it. And then they end up over here in this conversation about worship. And for some reason, God, Jesus, decides in that moment to share a theological truth about what it means to actually worship God. To who? Some lady at a well in Samaria. Not a large group, not religious people, but an outcast of outcasts. And that's who God chooses, Jesus chooses, to share this truth about worship. And what does he say? Look in verse 23. The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What does he say here? He talks about how to worship God, and then he gives the essence of God. Look at verse 24. It says, God is spirit. Y'all remember body, soul, spirit? We did it two weeks ago. And we talked about how God dwells within the spirit of man. Why? Because God is spirit. Okay? And he's, we have this conversation that's kind of like going here, going there, going here, going there. But Jesus kind of just goes with the flow and, and teaches as, she, as he can. He's taking the conversation wherever it goes. Why? Because he cares about this lady. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, he said one or two reasons. But the second reason was he had a lady he had to have a conversation with. Y'all remember in John 3, when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus? What was Nicodemus? He was a religious ruler, right? He was moral, a man of good standing. And God shares, Jesus shares the gospel with him. In John 4, we meet a woman whose name is never mentioned, who we are told is an outcast, and we are told is immoral. Yet the longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Gospel of John is found right here. The longest conversation, a lady who has no name, is an outcast of outcasts, and is immoral. Jesus decides to teach theology to. Jesus decides to offer life to her and salvation to her. 
We know this was weird because when the disciples came back, they were trying to figure out why he was talking to this lady. So this is strange customarily, but Jesus knew the gospel was for the sinner. And the sinner can take numerous shapes and sizes. It looks like the religious elite. It looks like an unnamed woman of Samaria. But let's go back to what, so what is the theology he says though about worship? I mean, this is, he went with her, but he's, you know, dropping gold here. So he says the hour's coming and it's already here. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So to worship the Father means that you worship in spirit and truth. And it says the Father is actually seeking people to worship him that way. Okay, that's a really heavy sentence in my book because the Father is seeking. I'm looking at him like he's up in heaven, <laughs> like looking down on earth. Like he's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. All right, so let's break that down. What does it mean to worship him in spirit and truth? Well, sometimes you might hear that, well, spirit and truth just means like with emotion and say right things about God. That's a possible interpretation of it. A possible interpretation of it. But I want you to think about this one. To worship in spirit and truth. Well, first of all, we see that God is setting the terms by which we worship. Right? If you remember the context, what they were saying. They were saying, hey, Jews worship over here and the other people worship over here. And what Jesus is saying is like, hey, look, there's a time coming. And we actually live in it right now. He said there's a time coming where location is not the, the biggest factor upon worship. But wherever you are, you worship in spirit and truth. So he's making a huge statement that location doesn't matter. Worship God in spirit and truth. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? To worship God in spirit means to be desiring and caring about and thinking about the things that are spiritual. Worship God in spirit. To be spiritually minded. To be kingdom minded. These are all phrases you might hear. It means that you are thinking about the things that are of the spirit. You're thinking about the things that are of uh, the desires of God. That means you're aware of the spiritual realities around you. I'm trying to not use big phrases here. It means that you're actually looking out, seeing what's taking place, seeing the spiritual truth of the situation that you're seeing. And in that, worshiping God. It says that you worship in spirit and truth. To worship in spirit and truth. Now, truth, that means in order to worship God, it must be correct in our mind. I want you to think about that. It's impossible to worship God with an incorrect thought about God. Let's just use a great example. Let's say you did not believe Jesus rose from the dead and that you did not, uh, he did not save us from our sins, okay? And, but you want to worship in truth. And so you're trying to do all these things to worship or you're singing songs for worship or you're trying to do acts of service. But God is looking and saying, like, oh, you have a major, like you don't even believe in the, the reason that I came here. You have to worship in truth. Now, here's what that does not believe. If you don't have 100% correct theology, you cannot sing a song to the Lord. That's not what we're getting at because, you know, we're all still kind of processing, figuring this out, letting the Holy Spirit teach us. But the major thing here is that 
To worship in spirit and truth means we have to worship on God's terms, not ours. So we worship on God's terms and not ours. A lot of times when we go into worship services, we'll say, okay, I'm able to worship today. <laughs> or we'll say, um, today's not my day. I'm not really feeling it. All right, those are your options. Um, and you'll go back and say, that was worship, that was not worship, that was worship, that was not worship. And he's saying, worship on God's terms. So whatever you think classifies worship, think about a worship moment. How do you create a worship moment, right? That's not it. But rather, worship God by being devoted to the spiritual realities and worship God in doing truth, being about truth. So does that include singing? Absolutely. When I sing, I'm awakening my soul to this spiritual reality that God is here and that I can pour my praise to him. That's God is, I'm worshiping in spirit. I'm worshiping in truth by declaring truth to him, declaring truth to each other. So it's not just singing. We all know that, and I can get in deeper uh, with that. But to worship God in spirit and truth. If you're really trying to think, okay, what are we talking about here? Okay, here's my actual challenge to you. I want you to think about that every day this week. God is spirit, worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, worship in spirit and truth. What does this mean? And just put that in your head and poise that question to the Lord. God, God is spirit. What does immersion mean to mean to worship in spirit and truth? God is spirit. So spirit, spirit, truth. Like, I'll see what I'm saying? Spend some time with that. Spend some time with that. I want to keep going. I'd love to have a deeper conversation with you about that. Okay, so he, he gives this worship truth lesson. And the woman says to him, you know, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. I'm in verse 25. And when he, when he comes, he's going to tell us all these things. In other words, Jesus gave her teaching. And she's like, you know, I know there's one guy who's going to come. It's like when you talk to a guy who doesn't really know much about religion. He's like, but I know there's like this one guy who's going to come, and he's going to tell you everything and lead us in the right path. And then to a person who has no religious really background and picks and chooses what to believe in the Bible, uh, he says, I'm he. And it's this huge moment um, because he's revealing himself to her. He says, I am he. So... The disciples come back, try to figure out what's going on, and jump down to verse 28. The woman left her water jar and went away into town to say, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? All right. So the, the scene changes. The attitude in this lady changes here. All right. So we've had satisfaction. In all of these places, Jesus offers real satisfaction he kind of just puts the thumb on a real thing in her life. She tries to dodge it. He rolls with her and says, here's worship. Here's this. He says, here's the reality of how to worship God. And she says, I kind of know a few things. There's some guy coming. And he says, I am that guy. And what all of a sudden, you see that there's this heart change within her. Why? Because she left her water jar, the whole purpose while she's out the well. And she runs into town, the town that she's an outcast of. She runs into town and says, come meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. The town already knew everything she'd ever done, right? Not Maybe not everything, but they knew. And so when she comes in 
and with boldness and not ashamed says, come meet this man that tell, told me everything I've ever done. They're like, wow, that must be something special because we all know you've like done a lot of stuff. And for you to come in and, and say that takes incredible courage. I mean, it takes 100% a heart change. All of the, the attitude that she had at the beginning, we see that stripped away. And we see a woman just running into town saying, there's something special out here. He's the Christ. He's, this is the Christ. Come meet the Christ. We have an uneducated person with hardly any religious background coming to tell him to come meet the Christ. Man, jump real quick to uh, verse 39. We're going to skip the the disciples' conversation. We're going to get back to that little comedic bit in a second. And it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What was her testimony? Hey, come see a man who's, come see a man. Y'all, y'all got to come, y'all got to go talk to this guy. Come see a man. Come see a man. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And it got to the point where they said to the woman and said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Matter of fact, we've heard it for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So at first, I want you all to think about this. We have a person who experienced a moment of salvation. Okay, That's the woman at the well. We can tell because there's belief when she runs back into Samaria, she says, come see a man. It's the Christ. We have this moment of belief. And they are like, oh, okay, let's find out what's going on. And they come out. And at first, they believed because of her testimony. And then they had developed their own belief because they had interacted with it themselves. In other words, a person shares the gospel but shares their testimony. Shares their story. Testimony is like that old Baptist word for story, all right? Shares their story. And as a result, this person, this civilization has a moment of salvation. And upon interacting with God, their faith is not based just in what has been told them, but it's based in what Psalm 34 would say is that they've tasted and seen the realities of God. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So one person's story impacts them into a moment of salvation, then they actually have interaction with God, and that's what is changing their life. So it actually becomes a lesson about evangelism. It actually becomes a lesson about evangelism. Think about this lady's story. Rejected by so many people in her town. Um, And we know that she didn't really want to be a part of it. Why? Because she came six hours after all the other people. She wasn't interested in hanging out with the other ladies. She kind of just wanted to do her own thing. Her story, which is full of immorality, which is full of brokenness, full of regret, full of shame, is full of past sexual sin. She tells that story in the middle of the town. This guy's told me all I've ever done. Matter of she kind of like owns up to her story and God moves. God uses her and her telling her story to spark salvation. We talk about all the time about sharing our faith. And 
I wanted to tell you guys that evangelism, I heard this the other day, and I want to share it with you guys. We think about the word evangelism. Evangelism is not apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. We're like, I'm going to prove to you why I'm right. And you're going to give me all of these facts, and we're going to have a very, very, very intellectual conversation. Sometimes you have that in the midst of evangelism. But evangelism is not that. Evangelism is sharing the gospel with someone in hopes that they can receive salvation, right? And most of the time we do that in the context of relationships. Because it's in the context of relationship that you can have a hard conversation. Well, you know, you know what you can also do in the middle of a relationship? You can tell your story. This lady told her story and the whole town was changed. She, they, she told her story. I think we need to start thinking about how we can tell our story to incorporate the gospel. And when I say tell your story, I'm not saying list all the deadliest sins you've ever done in your life and say how Jesus has captured you from that. No, I just tell you, tell your story. How'd you get here? You know, all the times people say like, hey, how, why'd you pick that major? You know, tell your story. Someone says, oh, hey, where are you from? Um, what's your story? Right, when you meet someone new, how'd you end up at SFA? Learn how to tell your story in a way that actually tells the story of Jesus in the same way. I was listening to a, a, a podcast this morning, and there was this lady who switched majors. I think she was like accounting or something, and she switched it to, uh, I don't even know the correct term for this, but essentially to learn to speak Russian, okay? It's a pretty cool major. We don't have that at SFA, do we? I don't think so. So she switched it to Russian, and often people would say, hey, what would you major in college? And she'd say, oh, Russian. And she'll go, oh, cool, what made you choose that? And she was very honest. She goes, you know, if, I, if I'm not really wanting to share the gospel, I'll just go, well, uh, just felt like it, and go on with her life. But in the moment when she actually desires to share the gospel, because the reality is she, she changed her major to Russian because she had just gone on a week-long mission trip to Russia, and she wanted to be able to share the gospel in Russian, and nothing was working that one week. And so she went and changed her major to Russian. So she learned the language. A couple years later, she went back and did a year-long furlough over there, was able to share the gospel in Russian. So the reality is her decision-making process was grounded 100% in the work of God. And she could easily tell the story and share who God was at the exact same time. And people could be blessed. But she just had to choose whether or not she would. So the question still remains, how are we tell our stories? And then you have the disciples who have no idea what's happening and are so consumed with Jesus getting food. But look at verse 34, and I want to leave you with this, and then I'll wrap everything up. You know, they're freaking out. Where did you eat? Did you eat? I didn't feed him. Who fed him? Uh, In verse 34, Jesus says to them, I like to think, first of all, I like to think Jesus is a funny guy. Uh, But he totally Jesus jukes him here right now. Like, he just, like, drops a bomb on him. Like, if I was in that room, I was like, oh, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> like, so they're making jokes, or I don't know, maybe they really were clueless. And Jesus says this in verse 34. Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He just talked about water satisfying. And now he's saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. I get, I get so emotional thinking about that verse. My 
uh, my source of energy, my essence, my fuel source, is to do the work the Lord's asked me to do. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So for those who already know the Lord, your food is to, your energy is to do the work that the Lord has asked you to do. Uh, a problem that we often have is that we, if y'all ever just felt off in a day, like I just feel a little funky, I'm just not myself, not really, I don't know, just meh. All right. Well, and then we often try to like figure out like, well, I wonder what it is. I wonder if like, and we get into all this weird thing and next thing you know, we're like taking yoga classes or we're like <laughs> practicing meditation or whatever, right? Like we're trying to figure out what's off and we're doing all these real practical shifts and that's going to look, I made a joke, but that's going to look different in your life. Okay. Yet he says, perhaps it's because you're burning the wrong fuel source in your life. Perhaps it's because you're going after the wrong thing. And Jesus says, but my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You're going to be at your peak. You're going to be thriving as a human when you are doing what the Lord has asked you to do. And when you're, when you're not thriving, when you're off, when you're meh, right? Ask yourself, am I doing what the Lord has asked me to do? Sometimes the answer is yes, and you're just going through a hard time, all right? That's a real thing. So let's not try to say this, that that doesn't exist. But am I doing what the Lord's asked me to do? What was his will, Jesus' will in this time? Was to do what the Father had asked him. So what did the Father ask? The Father had asked him to walk through Samaria, make a statement about uh, him caring for the marginalized. His will was to have a conversation with an un- unnamed lady at a well to have a direct conversation about satisfaction and fulfillment and say, look, all these other things that you've tried to fulfillment, they're terrible. (laughs) But I offer you living water and it's actually going to spring forth and overflow inside of you. This satisfaction. And that still is true for us. When we try to go to things other than Christ and the Holy Spirit for our satisfaction, what happens? We start feeling weird. We're not 100%. We're not thriving. Guys, I, I feel this personally on a level when I go to a relationship for satisfaction, for fulfillment, and I place all of my stock there, even if it's someone like my wife, wonderful lady, fantastic, right? But if I place all of my stock there, you know what happens? I start feeling off. I'm, I'm not thriving. I'm just, I'm, I can't explain it, but it's, I'm not 100%, and y'all know what I'm trying to say. It's because I'm not doing the work the Lord's asked me to do. I'm actually looking for satisfaction in something that I think is satisfying. But Jesus is saying, look, 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 look. The Holy Spirit placed inside of you allows you to have a relationship with God. That Holy Spirit is an analogy he uses for eternal living water. And that water, when we tap into that every day, that's satisfying. And that's the thing that's meant to satisfy your soul and to make you work at 100 to make you do the will and the work of the Lord. And so if we're letting something else satisfy us, even if it's a great thing, we are 100% off. And I have to tell myself this so often. I got to tell myself that all the time. So that's the question. How are you using your story? Where are you looking for satisfaction? Are you worshiping God on your terms? on his terms. 
And uh, did you see Jesus being intentional? Did you see his big old heart? He's a, he got a big old heart. He loves people. Let's pray. And I pray that God speaks to you. God, thank you for your word and just the reality that um, when we look to anything but you for satisfaction, it's a, it's a never-ending race. So God, I, I confess again that sometimes I do that. I'm going to look to you for satisfaction in my identity. I'm not looking for something else. I'm, I'm looking to you. May that be true for the, the ladies and the fellows in this room. May they look to you for satisfaction. And for some of us, that's just this really big churchy phrase. We don't even know what it means. Help us to break it down in our head. That when we, we're going to come to you for fulfillment. I'm going to be fulfilled because of my relationship with you. Not because of a grade. Not because of a relationship I have with some person. Not because of an economic standard. I want to be fulfilled because of who you are and who you've made me as an image bearer. So God, thank you for that reality. Thank you that you cared enough about a lady who is not even named a lady who is an outcast of outcasts, but you had an appointment with her and you were going to be intentional, even though you were tired from hiking all day. Thank you, Lord. God, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.